So many people are leaving their organizations. They're leaving their jobs. They're cycling out. What is the point? Why is this exit is happening? I mean, 40, 50% of the U.S. workforce, I know globally it's similar, but in the U.S. alone, people are starting to say, I'm done. I've had enough. It's because of the way that the workplace has evolved into a culture that does not honor people. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back. And today, oh, we got a special guest who's written a book that is very, very close to my heart. And I can't wait to hear some of the stories that is behind what has been the creation of this book and the movement that he's been doing. But here it is, Love as a Business Strategy. It doesn't get more perfect than that. And our guest today, Frank Donna, has a history of being one of the world's most sought after short form content creator. He's an entrepreneur, a best-selling author, a speaker, and a storyteller. And we're in for a few stories today. But we're really gonna be talking about resilience, belonging, and success. We're gonna go into Softway's own transformational journey, which is one of the companies he's been a part of and we're going to hear some stories of what happened over the ages, how love was applied as a business strategy, and regardless of where you are in your business, how can you apply the same principles and really be successful in the process? Frank, welcome to the show. Jason, so excited to be here, really looking forward to diving into the, the book and the stories and all that stuff. So thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. I cannot not have someone with love as a business strategy when I'm the guy that loves talking about selling with love. If you're selling with love, this is part of the equation. A hundred percent. And there so you go. I'd be curious to know, like, I feel like that isn't the business strategy that people operate by default, which probably is the reason why you brought this book upon. So if we're not operating from love, what's typically happening in the workplace? Greed. I would say that most of the time businesses are operating from a place of greed as a business strategy. And the bottom line isn't the people. The bottom line is the profits. And as a business owner, as someone who's trying to make sure that they are maximizing profits, what typically happens in large-scale organizations, or honestly, any company, is the people will not be focused on. There will not be a desire to make the people first and put people first. And what's crazy is that everything in your business strategy, every line item that you're actually looking at from a, a sales perspective, a revenue perspective, all of those numbers they connect and correspond with a person. And so if we're looking at trying to build a business around just focusing on profit and ignoring the people side of the organization, how people feel, how they are cared for, how leadership is creating or destroying the culture and the environment, you're operating from a place of greed. And so one of the first things we like to talk about with this book, I'm one of the four co-authors of the book, Love is a Business Strategy. And what we like to talk about is how the name came about. Because honestly, when you hear the word love and business next to each other, you kind of freak out. And like, and you understand like selling with love, like you have to understand what the approach looks like. We wanted to create something that was polarizing for people. Some folks, when they hear the name and they start to pick up the book, they're curious and they're intrigued by it because they, they kind of believe in it, but they don't know exactly what we're saying. And other people are angry at it. And they're like, let me see what these people are talking about because it's too soft. You can't be soft. You can't be lovey-dovey. A lot of HR folks, 
initially they freak out because they're like, are we talking romance right now? Are we talking inter-office relationships? No, we're not talking about any of that stuff. It is truly about focusing on the people, the human aspect of the workplace. And when you do that, you unlock the value and the potential of the individuals that you work with. Well, I'm glad you took away some of the assumptions people might have when they hear this for the first time. And I'm about to walk through the same ashes as you just went through, because I mean, when I'm going to be going out talking to salespeople about love, I know there's going to be some resistance. Yet, if we're looking at greed, right, if this is the baseline that most of us have been operating, there has been some success. I mean, these companies are still operating, but they're missing out on something. So what are we seeing now that's causing us to really need to reevaluate this greed model to make it from a place of love now more than ever? So let's talk about what's happening in the marketplace right now. Let's talk about the great resignation. Let's discuss how so many people are leaving their organizations, they're leaving their jobs, they're cycling out. Why are they doing this? Most organizations, most companies are trying to fight for better benefits, better perks. They're saying, hey, you can work in a hybrid model. You can work at home sometimes. You can work at the office sometime, whatever. People are still leaving. Why are they leaving? What is the point? Why is this exit is happening? I mean, 40, 50% of the U.S. workforce, I know globally it's similar, but in the U.S. alone, people are starting to say, I'm done, I've had enough. It's because of the way that the workplace has evolved into a culture that does not honor people. There's toxicity in the workplace that's pushing people out. And so, yes, greed can get you there. Greed can push you to the place where you are successful on paper. And that's what honestly what happened to Softway. We were successful on paper for many years, but the greed that was created eventually caught up to our balance sheet. The treatment of our team members eventually eroded the ability for our company to earn money because we were not focused on putting people first. So greed can get you a certain amount of the way, but eventually it'll catch up to you. And the challenge is... When that does happen, what are you going to do about it? And right now, a lot of companies are faced with this reality. I have not put people first. Folks are seeing more opportunities elsewhere. And it doesn't matter how much money you pay me. I am not going to, I'm not going to hang. I don't want to be a part of this. Rightly so. So I feel like that kind of addresses the, the moment in time we're in, as well as the value and the, the, the necessity for changing the way we're working and the way we're creating these cultures in our workplaces, because it is, it's, it matters. And we're talking about people, not just profits. It's very interesting. And yeah, this whole great resignation is a fascinating phenomenon for us to witness right now. But I would think that there's a lot of different changes that are happening that are giving us an opportunity to find alternative ways to work. Like we don't need to deal with the corporate work environment that was forced upon us. So I think that that flexibility, whether people are moving to being freelancers, contractors, new companies that are are coming up, which I'm sure you're featuring in your book that are applying mm -hmm. this love first philosophy mm -hmm. are taking away the best talent. And I wanted to get into this, but I had one more question around the greed part, which is look at those corporations, you know, and that are operating from a greed perspective. I don't feel like, or maybe I'm wrong, but maybe my rose colored goggles are a little too strong, but I feel like most companies don't start with an objective saying we're going to be a greed focused company and we're not going to care about our people. It feels like most companies would start with humble beginnings, yet there's pressures that happen that force them into the greed model. Is that typically what happens? 100%. So again, it happened to software. I'm, I'm using our example 
because in the book itself, we speak from personal experiences as practitioners, as folks that have made all of the mistakes and wrote about all of our mistakes very publicly as a way to help people learn and grow and adapt from our stories. Softway started as a family-run business. Mohammed Anwar, who's our CEO, he started it with two of his friends in college when he was still pursuing his computer science degree at the University of Houston. It was a family business. Him and his brothers, his family, his friends, they all started working on it. And then guess what happened? He got really rich. And as, as, as soon as he started to experience these perks of being a CEO, buying the houses, flying the planes, having expensive lunches, getting the Porsches, all that stuff, it started to cloud his judgment. And it was almost like what we ended up having to do in order to save our company, what we write about in the book was go back to the basic foundations of why he created this company in the first place, why he wanted to build an environment around people. He lost sight of that because the money got in the way, the things got in the way. And so part of him transforming into the leader that he is right now is having to strip away some of those things. So one of the things he did and didn't tell anyone was he sold his house and put all of the money back in the company. He sold his Porsche and put all of his money back in the company. When when we were going through in 2016, 2015, 2016, rounds of layoffs and basically a downturn in our, in our company where we almost went into bankruptcy, he sacrificed all of these possessions that had become the focus point of his life. Not to say, not to, he didn't tell anyone. No one knew about this. He just showed up one day driving a golden minivan and people were like, where's your Porsche? And he's like, don't worry about it. He did that for himself. He's not calling other leaders to sacrifice monetary possessions and sacrifice good stuff that they enjoy. But if that is holding you back from creating an environment where people can bring their full selves, where people feel included, empowered, trusted, forgiven, all of these pillars that we talk about in the book of what a culture needs to be built on, if the money is holding you back and the greed is holding you back from creating that environment, get rid of it. If that's not the thing, don't worry about it. So you can still drive your Model X. That's okay. You can still live in your mansion. That's fine. We're not saying that you have to sacrifice those things, but we are saying that it is important to sacrifice the thing that is creating this friction and creating this issue. And I think that is along the lines of what you're talking about as well with, with Selling with Love. The idea is you have to break down to the core understanding of what your belief system is and connect with people on a human-to-human level. It's not about all the other flashy stuff. It's about making, like doing the best thing for the people that you're engaging with, whether it comes from a place of sales or a place of building a foundation for a business. I absolutely love that. And it sounds to me like this whole greed aspect or this, you know, it's almost like a side effect of success that could be a temptation to lure you away from the foundation that actually brought you that success in the first place. And so would I be right to assume that most of what you speak about, about love as a business strategy, is it something that we need to be really conscious about when we set the foundation of the company and we're just getting started? Or is this a correction course for someone who's already started and has lost their way? I love that question. And the answer is yes. (laughs) It's both. It's both. It's both. We prove out in this story and in the book that it's possible to course correct. It's possible to take the time as the leader. One of the foundational principles that we talk about in our stories is that culture transformation and the ability to change an organization starts really at the top. If your leadership isn't bought into the desire to change an organization for the better, it's going to be really hard to change the entire thing. What you can do is even if you're in middle management or somewhere in the middle, you can create pockets of high performance. You can create pockets 
of this culture of love that we talk about. And it's possible to do that. But when you really want to actually build an organization that is resilient, that is created to bring success to as many people as possible, that has to start at the top. And that can start at any point in a company's life cycle. At the very beginning, that would be fantastic. Creating that mission, creating those values and, and sticking to them in a real way. Can I be honest with you for a second, Jason? A lot of companies, they use these words for their values. They're like, trust. We're going to create efficiency. You know, all these like, like words that mean nothing to people. Like, I don't understand why this value is here why this statement is here. No, the statements were meant to be actions. So you can begin your journey as an organization from a perspective of love. Or you can course correct and say, personally, how do I need to change for the betterment of my company? What do I need to do to change my behavior to create more inclusion, to create more empowerment, to create more empathy, trust, forgiveness, vulnerability? How can I course correct in my own life to produce an opportunity for others to thrive. It's possible to do both. So I love that. And it seems like it reinforces the fact that if I'm in a leadership position, I hold a lot of responsibility to live up to the strategy of love. And if that's not happening, then you're going to have a lot of friction if you're trying to make that change happen and you're not in a position to reflect back to the leader, maybe in places where they're not acting in those ways. Now, you've already given some great examples about the leadership within your organization that had to, you know, made changes. They started selling the things that they had attachment for that created that kind of dysfunction. What if someone in here, maybe they don't have that issue yet, but they're trying to do maybe a self audit. Maybe they're trying to make actions to get them to apply more of love as a business strategy. Where do you start? So in the book on page 29, digital or print, it doesn't matter. We have our framework and our framework is really what we have found as practitioners to create the best possible outcomes for creating this culture of love. And the very foundational piece of this framework that ultimately leads to business outcomes by the way. So I'm talking about like, if you're a business owner, a CEO, an entrepreneur, someone who is actively seeking to build better revenue or higher efficiencies or processes that work for more people, whatever those outcomes are that you have, it starts at the very bottom, which is behavior. How we behave with each other creates the foundation of a culture. Most people assume culture is the perks and the benefits. You got a ping pong table. Awesome. You got unlimited vacation. Doesn't matter. That's not culture. Those are perks. A culture is how we behave with each other and the behavior we're willing to tolerate. That's what culture is. So if you're a leader, you are actively creating or destroying culture with your behavior. How do people feel in the rooms that you're in with them? Are they empowered to push beyond their potential skill sets today, which is what you should be doing as a leader? I'm sorry that I'm angry. But from a behavior perspective, I'm kidding. Your mindset, your attitude, and the way you communicate is foundational. Then, as a leader, once you begin to introspect and begin to become more self-aware about your own personal behavior journey, how am I actively behaving with people? If you're building that introspection and that self-awareness, that unlocks the ability for you to start practicing the six pillars of the culture of love, which is what we talk about in the book. The idea of building inclusion, empathy, vulnerability, trust, empowerment, and forgiveness. You're able to create a culture of love established on these six pillars. And those six pillars create high-performing teams. And so when a team is high-performing, 
they are operating from a place of forgiveness, from a place of inclusion, from a place of trust, from a place of vulnerability and empathy. All of those components of those pillars activate high-performing teams, which creates better efficiency inside of a company, less waste, and more innovation. And so, Jason, if you've ever, I know we've talked about kind of behind the veil, this this book that you're coming out with is you, right? It's Jason. It's not the companies you've worked for in the past. I know that you've probably worked on teams before, right? I bet that you've actually worked with groups of people. Imagine for a second how, like the best team you've ever worked with. I'd invite your listeners and viewers to think about this as well. Think about the best team you've ever worked with. I bet... I'm willing to bet, if I was a betting man, that all six of those pillars would actually be visible in your mind. You trusted each other. You were vulnerable. You were included. You were empowered. You were forgiving of each other. You were empathetic to the needs of each other. Now think about the worst team you've ever been on. I bet that the opposite is true. There was no inclusion. You were not empowered to do the work. There was no trust. All of those things. So what happens when you create a high-performing team? you unlock efficiency, and you create innovative opportunities. A team that is working together, a high-performing team isn't just going to take a task and say, I'll complete this task exactly how you asked me to complete it. They're going to take the task and say, this could be better, and we're going to make it better. And then what we deliver to you isn't what you asked for, it's what you need. And as a result of unlocking high-performing teams that are building efficiencies and innovation, that's where you get to your business outcomes. That's where you create opportunity for more revenue. That's where you create operational efficiency. That's where you bring in the ability for people for cost containment. That's where you help employees be retained inside of an organization. So that's it. Behaviors, the six cultural pillars, and then that ultimately leads to resilience and belonging for teams, which creates your business outcomes. So that framework, when put into practice, actively creates the structure necessary to build your business around love. That sounds incredible. And of course, yes, when you ask me about those examples, I can think of when we actually were looking to launch actually Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mindvalley's first book, uh, Code of the Extraordinary Mind, we were part of a power team. And like, we all hustled together. We had a common goal. We were figuring things out. We were making mistakes. We trusted each other. Everybody was competent. It's so fun. And it's super fun. Time flies, worked so many hours and everybody pulled their weight. Now, when you mentioned the negative experience, you know, I yeah. I actually have to share. I think I could think of when I was dealing with having my first team members on my team, I was the one that didn't have the right behaviors. I didn't have the trust. I was trying to just tell people to do the piece that I would give them, and I didn't trust that they would figure things out on their own, or I didn't even trust that they could do it as good as me. And I would have some great people, and they didn't stick with me. I, I had failed projects because of that, you know? And so I I can't say I'm proud of it, but it's definitely something I had to learn through. I was probably not, I wouldn't say I was operating from a place of greed, but there was definitely fear and it definitely wasn't Absolutely. Maybe this is, I don't know if this is a negative question to ask, but at one point, if I'm a leader, how do I assess if I'm ready or the cause of lack of performance because I'm not operating from love as opposed to just realizing that some of the people I have on my team are just not ready or wanting to operate from a place of love? Again, I think it goes back to you and Jason, kind of the approach that you took just then, that introspective journey that you just walked through of having the self-awareness to realize maybe the problem was me. Most often leaders are looking at everyone else around them and saying, it's because I was given a crap team. It's because the people on my team weren't capable and weren't willing to do the work. 
That's usually not the case. It's usually the perspective and mindset of the leader saying, I don't believe this individual is capable of going beyond their current skill sets because what I've seen in the past probably will dictate what will happen in the future. We call that predictive trust. You're just operating from a place of prediction of what they could do, not what they should do. And the problem is that leaders will look at all of the other things around them instead of recognizing that you don't have to have an all-star team of people. And actually, this has been debunked many times. You don't have to have the all-star superstars on a team to get high performance. And that's what we saw and really what pushed Muhammad to make his change internally was attending a football game, American football game at the University of Houston. His alma mater, the Cougars, were playing this this team that was just absolutely demolishing them. I mean, it was an unbelievable loss, potential loss. And this first-time coach, his name was Tom Herman, was coaching this team. The Cougars were down like 30 points. It was insane, at the almost at the end of the game. Imagine like for those international folks that are big into f- actual football, you're down three points and it's the end of the second half. And, you know, everybody's left the stadium at this point. Ted Lasso's freaking out because he doesn't know what to do. So Muhammad stuck it out, though. He actually stayed at the game. He watched the Cougars come back to victory in this insane, like imagine three scores back to back to back, like unbelievable. And he listened to this coach talk about why his team was able to perform like that. And he talked about love and Muhammad had never heard that. And, you know, this was right after these layoffs happened, right after we had gotten the news that bankruptcy was about to happen to the company, that we're about to lose everything. And he went to this football game. He heard this coach talk about it and he thought to himself, am I the problem? Do I really love the people that I work with? And up until that point, you know, just to set some context, he started the company in 2003. So in 2015, 12 years later, this is when all of this was going down. And he thought to himself, am I the problem? Have I, have I been the one that has, that has eroded the trust in this organization? Do I really love my, my team, my people? Because up to that point, he was working from the command and control perspective. He was looking at all the big companies and the way they led. He was filling the team that was around him with these old school guys from Microsoft and IBM and all these very talented individuals from this old school way of thinking that were telling him, this is the way you should be doing business. And he thought to himself, there's something wrong here. Maybe I need to go in a new direction. And it wasn't until he realized that the problem was actually him as a leader that he began this journey. And so my challenge to you, Jason, I think you've already gotten, you've already gotten there. You recognize most of the time, it's not the ability of your team. It's the mindset of the leader. And if your mindset is, I'm going to allow people to fail so that they're able to make the mistakes to learn, that's a very different place than saying, I'm operating from a place of fear where you can't make a mistake because if you make a mistake, I look bad. These are lessons that I think everybody will be able to apply and really start thinking about how you can start putting this into effect sooner than later. And I find it's inspiring to hear that this is a transition that happened in the dire times, because would it be fair to assume that most people who hear about love as a business strategy would resist the idea and say like, oh yeah, no, our business is too competitive. I don't have time to apply that. We can't make those changes. I like people just don't feel like there's a strong enough reason to make that shift? And how do you overcome that? What is your competitive advantage? 
in an organization? Your people. It's the people. Yes. The people. <laughs> That's it. That's the answer. So if you're looking to increase revenue, then you need to create a culture where people value each other and innovation. If you're looking to increase efficiency and reduce cost containment, then you need to have transparent communication happening between all parties involved. Any business outcome can be tangibly tied to the way people are treated, the way people engage in a company. So any time is the right time to start actively looking at the way your culture is created and what you're doing to support or destroy it. What we say is there are no neutral interactions. That means every conversation you have as a leader, every discussion, every meeting, you have an outsized influence. And you have to recognize that that outsized influence is having a tangible connection to the bottom line. But we talk about the bottom line from a place of behaviors. So for those out there that are thinking, we're not in war right now, we're kind of in peacetime, you know, I want you to, to think about and introspect on how your company is functioning today. Do your teams, are you operating from a place of trust? Are you operating from a place of empowerment? What are you doing to actively support and guide and mentor those around you? You have to constantly be on this journey because the journey doesn't have an end. And it's okay to pick up any at any point in time. If your company's doing fantastic, it can do better. If your company's doing terrible, it can do better. It just comes down to the willingness you have. A lot of times people say, well, this is a soft thing. I want to invest in new computers because then people can work faster. It's not actually true. This is not a soft skill that we're talking about. This has implications to the way that your business performs and ultimately the revenue that you're trying to generate. And it's sometimes challenging to get people to think about things from that perspective, but once they start to recognize that every line item is connected to a person and every person is connected to a behavior, then it starts to be a little easier for people to unpack the realities that love actually needs to play inside of a company. Brilliant, Frank. I absolutely love everything you're teaching here and it's so practical and I think it's going to be a great self-reflection for all the listeners to see where they sit and where they're going to make these changes. I wanted to ask one last question here, which I think would be powerful because change is hard. Self-awareness and admission of maybe underperformance, especially as a leader, can be an act of courage and to shift to a strategy, which is a strategy of love, could feel embarrassing possibly if it's not very well accepted with your shareholders and stakeholders that you're bringing this forward, what is the message you give to leaders for them to have even more trust that this is the way that they should be going and it's a highest priority? I would say that when we talk about one of the, one of the pillars that scares people uh, the most is vulnerability. And the word vulnerability means a lot of things to a lot of different people. The way we use the word vulnerability within this love as a business strategy framework is owning up to and admitting mistakes and being held accountable to moving forward past those mistakes. And that's really where it starts. That's not that hard to do, but a, a, for a lot of a lot of leaders, there's massive ego, there's massive pride. All of that stuff has to be torn out. And to really do the hard work is to say, I'm sorry, I messed up, I made a mistake. Let's move forward together. For those leaders that are still struggling with how can I take the time to do this? I want you to think about what you're currently focusing on now. Where are you currently focusing your energy and your time? It should be on your people. That's why people are leaving. That's why your company is faced with a crisis mode of folks actively looking for jobs. They may not be telling you 
that they're looking for jobs, but they're looking for jobs. So what are you doing to create an environment where people feel more included, where you're able to showcase that vulnerability to others? That is the question that I would ask individuals. And the value of this philosophy, the value of this kind of practical structure that we've created is it just starts with you. Like it's not something that you have to roll out and yell to the entire company and say, everyone, we're all making this change. It's just your personal journey. You start from the place of saying, I'm making this change. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and be more inclusive with my team. Let me see what happens when I empower others when they don't expect it. Let me try to trust people a little bit more. And you'll start to see the tangible benefits. And people may not ever tell you that they saw that change, but they'll feel the change. And that's valuable because when people feel all of those those six kind of words that I talk about, when they feel that that you don't hold unforgiveness and you're not misbehaving with them, guess what happens? They want to stay at your company and they want to do better work for you. That's what happened at our organization. Our clients saw our teams performing better when we began to embrace this new framework and approach. And as a result of that, we won more work and our company rebounded in an unbelievable way. Revenue trip 300% increase over two years, like wild stuff. Our EBITDA was way in the negatives, way in the positives after this. And we've been able to be resilient through COVID and through this downturn in the economies as a result of the work that was done to put in the extra effort. And you know that to me should be valuable and should be a top priority for leaders everywhere. Frank, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a fantastic conversation. One hell of a wake-up call for all of those of you who are listening and had any doubt as love being a powerful force, you can use it as a business strategy. And what I love the most is for everybody listening, it starts with personal accountability, auditing your own behaviors, seeing how you're showing up. Is it from a place of greed? Is it from a place of fear? Or is it from a place of love? If you are coming from a place of love, can you apply those six pillars into the way that you show up at work, not going on a megaphone and telling everybody else to do some fixing? Take a look in the mirror and really start seeing how you can update your behaviors to build a foundation for a much stronger company. And it doesn't matter which position that you're in. If you're someone that can look into the concepts of this book, you can start applying them right away. You can start seeing how you can always show up with more love in the ways that you interact with your team members, and you will notice that it will have a ripple effect. And if you are close to the CEO and you know what change needs to be done, well, this would be a great time to pick up a copy of that book, Love as a Business Strategy, Resilience, Belonging, and Success. Grab one for yourself buy an extra one for your boss, slip it on his desk, and that might be the saving act for the entire business. Frank, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so much fun, and I'm drinking your Kool-Aid, man, and I can't wait to read more about your book. <laughs> congratulations on your book as well. Yeah, congratulations on your book and, and the work you've done. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm so excited to be able to, to read it and dive in as well, and I'm glad we're so in sync. That's, that's really exciting. I'll take care of the sales portion. You'll take care of the rest of the business. How's that? Let's go. Let's go. (laughs) Take care, Frank, and everybody else. Thanks for listening. Thank you all. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast.